Some folks would rather have houses and land. Some folks choose silver and gold. Those things are what they treasure, but they forget about their souls. They make a choice. So thank you, John, for opening our worship today with words written by a community choir director in Los Angeles named Harrison Johnson. It is a perfect segue into the blistering social critique by the prophet Amos. In 1972, when the words of our call to worship were written, it was a heady time in gospel music. In addition to Johnson's L.A. community choir, a, a small-time fellow named the Reverend James Cleveland <laughs> had founded the Southern California community choir. And before she was queen, crowned the queen of soul, Aretha Franklin first sang How I Got Over at L.A.'s New Temple Missionary Baptist Church again in Los Angeles. She went on to record with Cleveland and his choir and produced Amazing Grace, which this year she was posthumously awarded the Pulitzer Prize. But if things were soaring in gospel music in 1972, it was a decidedly less heady time for people of color in Watts, Compton, and South Central Los Angeles. Black unemployment was high, the first public hospital was only just opening in the black community, and a grandson of slaves named Tom Bradley had not yet been elected when Johnson and his L.A. community choir looked heavenward for relief. God alone was the ultimate source of mercy who could help them bear the heavy loads of poverty, income inequality, and diminished hopes. This is precisely the stance taken in Danita's beautifully read Hebrew Bible text this morning. Amos' message is urgent, and his view is that time is short. All of these bad tidings are deployed through a series of visions in which God implores Amos by saying, what do you see? In this brief time I have with you this morning, I ask you to meditate with me on the theme, seeing and doing. What are we seeing and what are we doing about it? One problem with the Bible is that it can be nearly impossible sometimes to understand on face value or without doing a lot of digging and thinking, what is the text saying? In the Amos text, as my friend Peter Dichter, thank you for being here, friend Peter. I thought I was going to mention you in absentia. It's all downhill after that basket of summer fruit, he emailed me. <laughs> in one sense, he's right. Elsewhere in the Bible, summer fruit is well regarded. In 2 Samuel, summer fruit is a present given to kings and it's a provision for armies. In the book of Micah, we hunger for summer fruit during seasons of lack. In Jeremiah, summer fruit is gathered in abundance. But for Amos, the downhill slope actually starts with summer fruit, <clears throat> which he links with wailing and dead bodies while making a word play that you only get if you read Hebrew, suggesting that the end is near. Isn't it always thus with summer fruit? 
I invite you all to leave a peach or a slice of melon out on your unair conditioned counter this afternoon and see how that goes. Even lovely bowls of summer fruit can seem beautiful on top, but when you lift up a melon or lift up a banana or lift up a peach or lift up a plum, hidden beneath is a softness of coming rot or a flurry of fruit flies beneath. Do we know what it is we're seeing when we're looking at it? That's what God asks as well, when in this fourth vision, God unambiguously asks Amos, what, sister preacher, do you see? God is asking us that today. What do we see? Seeing couldn't be more difficult than it is right now in these not-so-united states of America. The cacophony of so many voices filling our ears with social media, regular media, dying media, is such that the eyes almost reflexively squeeze shut. And then how's our seeing when it's not on the front page anymore? We're grateful especially at this time of year for each and every child who's able to make their way through institutions of higher learning. Yet at the end of 2018, the average student who was able to graduate from any American college or university came out with more than $33,000 worth of student loan debt. And that, and that number soars if you've gone to graduate school to about $85,000. Medical school, business school, $125,000 of student loan debt. And do we notice, do we see when those same students can't catch a break trying to borrow money to start a business? Can those students ever consider buying a home? What do we see with our eyes? In my neighborhood in Brooklyn, we see pride flags everywhere. In shops, selling pottery, selling coffee, selling tea in exercise studios for strengthening, lengthening, and toning your muscles. They had a special pride heart shirt to go with everything they're doing in there that I never see. <laughs> SLT pride, you go head on, okay. Marketers call this phenomenon the pink dollar, and they've put a price tag on it. $917 billion when measuring the purchasing power of the LGBTQ community. Thank you, Madison Avenue. We're proud for that acceptance, but do we see the work that still lies ahead of us to combat the embedded intolerance that's still lurking in these neighborhoods? Did we see it this year when one of our collegiate ministries displayed a pride flag emblazoned with a logo alongside two pride flags and that simple act unleashed a small tsunami of anonymous hate mail and voicemails? And meanwhile, in one of our close-in suburbs, do we see it when one of our church families lifts a pride flag in their own yard at the house they own? and a neighbor deploys the privileged yet terrifying cloak of anonymity to drop an unsigned letter at their door, critiquing the wisdom of their legal right to fly the flag, and also derisively questioning their patriotism in doing so. Mm 
That's our family, and there's so much to see and so much to do. Our hearts are breaking and our anxieties soar around the country's brutal internment of migrating people and the coordinated ICE raids that are targeting immigrant communities. Yet somehow under the radar, the leader of the nation's largest provider of migrant shelters for children was paid $3.6 million last year. What captures our attention and what escapes it? And in my precious Puerto Rico, Dios mío, Dios mío, Dios mío, yes, people have taken to the streets, and yes, the governor is scrambling, but is he really scrambling over the newly discovered trove of instant messaging chats? Or is the governor's real worry that scrutiny may be placed on organizations like Unidos por Puerto Rico, created by Puerto Rican First Lady Beatriz Roseo, his wife, who raised privately $38 million. Where is that money? Meanwhile, post-hurricane relief aid has slowed to a trickle. Our partners say aid from sources like that have evaporated altogether. And meanwhile, what's happening? The suicide rate continues to climb. Four different municipalities reported self-inflicted deaths just last week outside metropolitan San Juan. And yes, the American Red Cross is providing solar panels to 30 schools, and we want to applaud that. We see that, and we think that's great they're doing that. But nearly 300 schools have been closed and will never reopen. And I can't even put words to the level of crazy placed before us by our tweeting president's attack on four congresswomen. My eyes nearly popped from my head when I saw a CNN focus group earlier this week. And I never watch CNN, so I normally don't see it. But there was a focus group explaining and justifying the president's behavior. And so here's correspondent Randy Kay trying to keep a straight face, reading a dictionary definition of racist from the dictionary. And she asked eight women on camera, based on that definition, do you not think that what the president has been saying is, and she was cut off immediately by a woman, unfortunately named Gina O'Brien, a, a bleached blonde Dallas suburbanite who deadpanned, no, he dated a black woman for two years. <laughs> two of his wives are immigrants. He can't be a xenophobic racist. And I'm like, Gina, you need rebranding on the last name first, and then we'll work on what you understand when people marry somebody, okay? What are we seeing? What are we called to do? Or if we can dive into Marty's I Can Love My Neighbor Bingo Challenge, who are we listening to? Seeing and doing is at the heart of the New Testament's constantly misinterpreted story of Martha and Mary. Luke is the only gospel writer who recounts this episode. So I thank God for the incredibly gifted New Testament scholar, A.J. Levine, and for Bernadette Bruton, a sexual ethicist who has pioneered work on same-gender loving early Christian women 
Both of them asked, answered my searing question, what am I seeing in this story? Because first, I, like most commentators, had tended to race, pay, race past Luke's notation that Jesus entered Martha's home. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't read the details. There's no mention of a man. Lazarus doesn't live here. It's an unmistakable echo, though, if we take time to see it, of Luke's statement two chapters earlier that wealthy women financed Jesus' ministry. That's Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, if you want to check it out before the talk back. Okay, so here's a woman who owns her own home, who's dependent upon no one, who's hosting a man. Secondly, I was surprised to learn that the many tasks that distract Martha have nothing whatsoever to do with pots, pans, or the kitchen. Okay? As much as I love Eugene Peterson's message translation, he even puts kitchen up in there. I almost read that translation today before I said, whoop, this is not what the Greek says. Indeed, the tasks to which Martha is attending is from the Greek word diakona. That's the same root from which our word deacon comes. And when that word is deployed elsewhere in Mark, in Acts, and in 2 Corinthians, it's discussing the works of ministry. So here's what stops now. This story isn't about one hardworking woman busting suds in the kitchen and a second slacker gal in the front choosing the better part by sitting contemplatively at Jesus' feet. Okay, that's not what that story is, okay? Okay, that, that story is not that. Ancient manuscripts also include this word, also, in verse 39. So that provides an alternate translation to even describe Martha. It should be, she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. So both women, apparently, from time to time, studied with Jesus and listened to him. John's gospel is familiar with this pair because in the 11th chapter of the gospel of John, we know it's Martha who goes to meet Jesus first to discuss the death of her brother. Mary turns up later, but it is Martha who declares knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah. In today's account, both of these women were seeing and doing. And without question, Martha presses Jesus to mobilize Mary but to do what? To come to the next protest march? To community organize? To prepare for another service of worship? To go to another collegiate consistory committee meeting? The fifth that week? Just kidding. Bernadette Bruton's scholarship on women leaders in the ancient synagogue uses archaeological inscriptions to present irrefutable evidence that women at this time of this story were leaders, elders, mothers of the synagogue, and even priests. Just saying. Okay. They were active in administration and in exhortation. 
and they had knowledge of Torah. The inscriptions on tablets, fragments, and surveys and reviews of ancient synagogue ruins in Palestine suggest an active participation of women in Jewish religious life and in the work of the early church. So that moves me, I don't know about you, but from pitting Mary and Martha, but it moves us actually into more troubling contemporary territory, and that is this. Was it the hyper-functioning addiction to busyness or that familiar, I've got to do it myself or it won't get done, sense of self that crept into Martha's cosmology? Might that have been what Jesus was pointing to? Now, how many times have we chatted with a friend, a family member, not ourselves in the mirror, but who has simply stopped dreaming? Somebody who's just maintaining because they're too busy to move on their vision. They're too busy to start their dream business. They're too busy to reach their personal goals. They're too busy to even catch their breath. Busyness is such omnipresent reality in our work and family life and even in our religious life. So much so that busyness has become a topic for scholarly research. Overwork, constant fatigue, lack of leisure, monkey mind, and inability to just stop and be is at all-time highs in the United States of America. While someone's making us great, they're also making us really tired. Similarly, that's the culture Amos critiqued in seeing that basket of summer fruit. It was a society of constant commerce and consumerism with a dollop or two of cheating, deceit, and false balances. I think we still have that. Amos condemns his contemporaries both for their words and their works. Incessant buying and selling trampled those in need and ruined the poor. That was in the 8th century BCE, but sadly, he's a prophet for our times today. God's urging Amos to see so that he might act. The New Testament story is also one of seeing and doing. Everyone in this little short paragraph is doing something. Martha is attending to the work of the diaconate. Mary is participating with others in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell Martha to stop working, but he delivers an equally urgent message. Middle people, we must take time to reflect, to stop, to consider, and to look at God. That is the better part of wisdom, and that's the only way we are going to effectively craft the next steps on our journey that's going to dismantle the systems of injustice we're fighting for. Is there something we need to see in all of our doing Who's assigned to do the listening? In all of our doing, are we bound by limited expectations 
limited just because we're too tired or limited because we don't see clearly or limited because the overdoing has in and of itself robbed us of joy, of hope, of abundance, of healing, of all of the things that we're to bring liberation to the captives in our toolkit. The justice that Amos calls for must first start with ourselves. Just as I was about to leave for church this morning, the business that never sleeps, Amazon, had, had deposited a new book at the front step. It's called Telling Histories, Black Women Historians in the Ivory Tower. I randomly opened the book to a section called The Evidence of Things Not Seen the invisible history of invisible women. This particular book documents the ways that black women's history is still largely neglected. And I can share more about that at the talk back after the sermon. But here, beloved ones, let's look at the stories of empowerment, possibility, and self-care when they are placed right before us. Martha is the head of a household. It's a statement of her wealth. Martha is demonstrating countercultural liberty such that she's hosting a man in her home. And by contrast, if you look at a story in the fourth book of Maccabees, there's an example of a woman who's the mother of seven martyrs who never receives a visit from a man, even in the presence of her parents. Both Mary and Martha are depicted in one way or the other as being disciples. And in the text, Jesus is called Adonai. Master, Lord, and it's Adonai who speaks with the precision about the risks we face when too many activities can derail visionary insight. So what are we seeing and doing? I'm saying to you this morning, I believe God is calling us to let go of our minds that are constantly active with thoughts and fears and worries. I urge you to let go of those things that don't serve you or don't serve our church or don't serve this world, like the feelings and sensations about what's constantly left to do, what can't get done, what's standing in our way unless we step into the middle of it. We serve a limitless God. So the lesson I take from Mary is not that she was doing nothing while Martha worked. Her teaching is that she knew what she needed to take care of herself, of her mind, her spirit, and her soul. She was doing and seeing the same thing, fixing her eyes upon God. Let it be so for us. Amen.